UK has a long-standing reputation for taking in refugees and for respecting international human rights law. Now, some folks dispute that reputation, uh, but the UK was recently ranked 12th among 31 countries in Europe and North America on a multifaceted scale that measures each nation's success in integrating immigrants into civil society. As a point of reference, Sweden, Portugal, and Canada ranked 1, 2, and 3 on that scale. The US ranked 9th, the UK again 12th. UK is also a good site to measure treaty effectiveness because it's ratified and effectively incorporated several human rights treaties into its domestic law over the past two decades. Most notably, the European Convention on Human Rights, which, as many of you know, became part of UK domestic law in 2000 through the passage of the Human Rights Act. So that sets the tone for the, the thematic framework for the project. Again, whether or not human rights treaties matter in the circumstances under which they have an impact on the state behavior. Now for a brief description and, and admittedly oversimplified uh, description of the asylum adjudication process in the UK. Now the initial decision is made by the UK border agency, usually negative, uh, and that decision can be appealed to an administrative tribunal, which right now is called the Immigration and Asylum Tribunal. And I say now because there have been many, many changes to the asylum adjudication process within the UK over the past decade, decade and a half, and different names for various tribunals and such. But it's the Immigration and Asylum Tribunal. It's a two-level tribunal. The first tier, here's the appeal from the border agency's decision. And that decision by that, the, the first tier can then be appealed to something called the upper tribunal. If the claimant's unsuccessful at the tribunal level, she can seek leave to appeal to the Court of Appeals, Court of Appeal, and ultimately to the Supreme Court. Judicial review in the UK, as in many other Commonwealth countries, is as of right. You don't automatically get it. You have to seek it and, and, and receive permission. And then appeals beyond the tribunal level, that is up to the upper level courts, are limited to errors of law. They don't they're not going to hear issues as to witness credibility, uh, factual disputes, that sort of thing. So it means that a, a rather small percentage of the disputes at the tribunal level will end up going on appeal. And we'll see that later on in terms of the distribution of, of decisions. So the key thing for purposes of our, of our purposes today is that the process has an initial hearing by an administrative tribunal fo followed by the possibility of an appeal to federal court. Now the methodology for the study. It's a mixed method empirical approach, meaning that it combines qualitative and quantitative data gathering. The qualitative aspect of it has involved 37, right as of now anyway, 37 interviews with UK refugee lawyers. And I've, I've um, selected lawyers who have at least five years of experience representing refugees and uh, for whom this <coughs> constitutes a significant part of their practice. And I've interviewed these lawyers between 2010 and 2013, though the bulk of the interviews has occurred between September of 2012 <coughs> and last week, because that's one of the things I've been doing while I've been on sabbatical is interviewing the lawyers. So thus far, I, I've interviewed 18 solicitors, 19 barristers, including four barristers who do at least some work on behalf of the government. As you probably know, barristers, some barristers do a little of both, although, interestingly enough, that's gotten harder and harder to do because, as those lawyers told me, 
once you are seen as someone who's going to argue a case for the government, uh, solicitors who are representing refugees are not going to be very inclined to uh, refer cases to you. The lawyers have been located in London, Birmingham, Cardiff, and here in Oxford, most in London because that's where the overwhelming bulk of asylum litigation takes place in the UK. I'll be doing additional interviews in additional locations during the course of the year. The quantitative part of the research, which is mostly what I'm going to, I'm going to be covering today, has involved my research assistants and I reviewing and coding over 1,300 written decisions by the UK Administrative Tribunal and Courts of Appeal from 1990 until 2012. And these are cases that referenced one or more human rights treaties that I'll enumerate in a bit, uh, either treaties and, and certain sections of treaties. Uh, and these are treaties that the lawyers identify as the ones they use the most in their advocacy. And not, not surprisingly, that showed up most frequently in our analysis of the written opinions by courts and the tribunals. We chose a 20-year period because most of the treaties in the study were ratified, or actually all of them were ratified by the UK by the late 1980s, and also because a 20-year period provides us with the ability to analyze trends in references over time. Now, a couple of words of caution about the, 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 the case law that we found, the decisions that may impact the conclusions, and I'd welcome uh, your reactions to this, that, and this particularly at the tribunal level. Remember I said there, was, there are two levels to the tribunal. The first tier tribunal does not issue written decisions. So we have no idea of the basis for which they decide yay or nay on an asylum application, or whether or not they are responsive to human rights arguments. So that's one gap. The other is that the upper tribunal only issues written decisions in a couple of categories of cases. One are called country guidance cases. These are cases where the upper tribunal will include an analysis of the conditions within the applicant's country of origin to determine whether or not the repression is such that asylum is justified. And then that country guidance case becomes a precedent for other applicants seeking asylum from that same country. Now those country guidance cases can be then modified because obviously conditions change within countries of origin, but, but they have precedential effect, effect for at least a certain amount of time. And then the, the other group of cases that the Upper Tribunal publishes are other cases believed to be of precedential value. But the Upper Tribunal decides. They make their own decision about which cases are going to be published. So again, it's a, it's, a, it's a narrow slice. Lawyers that I interviewed estimate that about 10% of tribunal decisions end up being issued in writing, which comes out to something around something less than 200 per year. And so we're looking at a, you know, a, 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 smaller, a small slice, 10% slice of upper tribunal decisions. Now, because we're looking at trends over time, we don't think that that is going to impact the conclusions that are drawn <coughs> from the data over time, but it's, it's, it's definitely worth noting in terms of the, the data that, that we are gathering. So which treaties are we talking about and why? And how, do, how, do they, how are they involved in the asylum and uh, complementary protection process? These, most of these are going to be familiar to you. The, the um, ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Convention on the Rights of the Child, 
Convention Against Torture, and then the European Convention. Here we identified four separate articles. These, again, are the ones that most frequently showed up in case decisions. Article 2, the right to life. Article 3, the right to freedom from torture, inhumane, and degrading treatment. Article 6, the right to a fair trial. Article 8, the right to respect for private and family life. And they've also included the, the EU Qualification Directive in 2004 here. Not a treaty per se, but, but um, it was issued by the EU in response to the, the problem that there was great diversity among EU countries in terms of how they were interpreting and deciding uh, on asylum claims. Even though they're supposed to be, be judging them by the same standards, the acceptance rates or the grant rates for asylum uh, vary widely. In, in certain EU countries. So qualification directives set out uh, standards for determining these cases. And soon after it, it, it came into force in the UK, there were some references to Article 15, which deals with serious harm to be suffered by the person if they are returned to their country of origin. And then Article 23, which has to do with the maintenance of family union uh, unity. Um, and is somewhat similar to Article 8 of the European Convention, but I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But before I go into more depth about these, there's a few, a couple of treaties here that you may wonder why they're not on the list, and probably the most obvious of which is the 1951 Refugee Convention, the explicit, the explicit intent of which is to benefit asylum seekers. But the thing about the 51 Convention is that it's limited to those who can demonstrate a well-founded fear of persecution on account of one or more of five enumerated grounds, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and membership in a particular social group. So you have to show that you were singled out for persecution on one of those grounds. What I'm interested in are human rights treaties that don't necessarily pertain to refugees per se, but whose scope has been interpreted so as to offer protection to asylum seekers or others seeking protection from persecution. So, for example, Article 3 of the European Convention can be and has been used where someone faces the risk of torture or degrading treatment, regardless of the reason, okay, even if they haven't been specifically targeted. So perhaps if they're fleeing a situation of generalized uh, violence or, or they're going, they, they feel that they're going to be tortured or, or punished uh, for a reason that doesn't fit within one of those five grounds. So it offers a broader more comprehensive protection to the refugee. Article 8 of the European Convention prevents authorities from interfering with an individual's right to family life. That's enabled many citizens, many non-citizens, uh, to remain in the UK even where they can't meet or fit within one of those five grounds for protection under the Refugee Convention. It's very controversial. A clause, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, the tabloids in the UK have had a field day which, with some of the cases that have resulted in a grant of protection under Article 8. And indeed, the Home Office introduced a set of, of uh, rules last summer to curtail the use of Article 8. Those rules are now the subject of ongoing litigation. Article 2, used most frequently in cases where someone is certain or claims to be uh, certain to face death upon return to their home country. Article 6, not used quite as often, uh, will often buttress the grant of asylum that's, that's uh, based on other grounds, uh, refugee convention grounds, but it has been successful where the applicant argues that she did not receive a fair trial at the tribunal level. 
And again, the qualification directive has been used, uh, Article 15, again, in situations where a person's going to face serious harm upon return. It's limited, though, and subject to various exclusions, including exclusions for criminal activity, so it's not as useful as Article 3. And then Article 23, uh, states must ensure the maintenance of family life. But here, this is limited to families which existed in the applicant's country of origin. It's much more limited than Article 8, because the typical Article 8 case is when someone comes over to the UK um, and uh, on their own applies for asylum. It's, 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 they don't have grounds under the 51 Convention, but since they've been in the UK, they've, they've um, uh, they, uh, started a relationship with a partner, maybe they have kids, they've developed a family life, a private life here in the UK. That's the basis for the protection. Now, in addition to the Refugee Convention, the other treaties that you don't see here that you might wonder why they're not on here are the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Why aren't they? Why aren't we analyzing their impact? That's because they don't show up in any of the cases, or at least in very many of the cases at all. And the lawyers indicated that they hardly ever use them. This actually goes to one of our preliminary conclusions, which is that treaty ratification by itself doesn't really have much impact at all on a treaty's effectiveness, because all of those three treaties have been ratified by the UK. They haven't been incorporated, effectively incorporated, or they haven't received any sort of judicial imprimatur through a Supreme Court case, as is the case with, for example, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we'll talk about in a little while. Now, what do we mean by, I've been talking about references to treaties. What do, what do I mean here? So we searched through several case law databases in the UK, looking for references to the treaty itself or to certain keywords and phrases from the treaty. We coded those, those references according to the following seven categories. And the, the ones that appear most frequently are the first three. And those are the ones I'll be talking mostly about today. The first being a situation where the court relied on the treaty in rendering its decision in favor of the asylum seeker. So the treaty was the basis for the grant of asylum or, or other protection. Second, and this is the most common category, the court rejected the treaty-based argument. It considered it, it engaged it, but it said it was not applicable and then ruled against the claimant. And the third coding category was the situations in which the court used the treaty to buttress a grant of asylum on other grounds, typically the, the 51 Convention. And uh, so it wasn't the basis for the decision, but it aided the decision, or it was used for interpretive effect. The other four categories, not we, we didn't see them nearly as much as the first three. Uh, the, the court cited the asylum seeker's home country's violation of the treaty and its description of conditions within that country. The treaty was referred to in a dissenting opinion. The court didn't recognize the validity of the treaty. And then the seventh one, we actually did see this a fair amount, but not as often as in other countries such as Canada. The court mentions the treaty. It, it, it acknowledges that the lawyers raised it in their pleadings, but it doesn't analyze it. just ignores it. So, so these were the, the seven categories. So let's look at the pattern of references to treaties and tribunal and court decisions over the past 20 years. So this is like the dorsal fin of a shark or something like that. I hope the colors are somewhat, so it's a challenge to get these 
stand out very well, but we've assigned different color to each of the trees or tree sections that I described earlier. And we go from 1990, we go from 1990 up here to 2012. So a few things that are noticeable right off the bat, of course. First, first of all, virtually no references to any of these treaties prior to 2000. There's a few, a little blip over here um, for Convention Against Torture and ICCPR, but virtually none prior to 2000. Even though, again, these treaties, with the exception of Qualification Directive, obviously, but these treaties had been ratified by the UK. So again, ratification alone, very little impact on treaty effectiveness or, or, or in, in effect in uh, altering state behavior. Then we have what several attorneys I talked to, the explosion in the early 2000s of treaty references generally, but in particular, Article 3 of the European Convention and to some extent, Article 8, the orange line. Because now, as a result of the incorporation or as many people refer to the, the effective incorporation of the European Convention into the Human Rights Act, the European Convention is now part of UK domestic law. And as many lawyers I interviewed noted, judges are much more comfortable citing UK domestic law than to international law. So that explains the rapid rise, certainly in Article 3 and Article 8 as well. Now the other thing, of course, that's immediately noticeable is the huge drop-off in Article 3 by the mid-2000s. Now, what's what's the what's the rationale for this? And again, I welcome any thoughts that you have. A few that we have considered. One is what some have described as an overheated response to Article Three. In other words, you know, once once the floodgates were open for lawyers to start asserting Article Three in cases where someone was likely to experience torture or other other forms of harm upon return to their home country, they put it in almost all their cases. Because they no longer had to show that, that the torture or other harm was going to be the result of one of those five enumerated grounds. But why the drop off? Well, overheat followed by cooling off, um, which might be attributed to, to uh, what I call human rights fatigue. The judges start getting tired. It goes back to the cartoon where some of the judges become more disillusioned by these human rights arguments showing up in every single case, and they begin to question the validity of them, and start to ignore them or start to reject them in greater numbers. And therefore, the lawyers start to ease off on asserting them in their pleadings. Another possible explanation is what Catherine uh, Deverne has uh, termed the learning effect, that judges are more likely to engage with international norms when those norms are newly relevant. But over time, that engagement starts to dissipate. The other possible explanation is that the qualification directive picked up some of the slack. This is the, the light blue line, Article 15, which is the serious harm. That starts here in the mid-2000s after the qualification directive became effective. It goes up a little bit, but not nearly as much, of course, to, to compensate for this tremendous drop in Article 3 references. And the other possibility is, is the fact that asylum applications, which we'll see in a moment, asylum applications overall declined precipitously during the same period. 
in that because there's an overlap, more of an overlap between Article Three claims and refugee convention claims, more of an overlap between those two really than any other type of complementary protection. The decline in asylum applications generally meant that references to Article Three also declined. Other notable things about this chart, we don't see a similar drop-off really with art, similar to Article Three. We don't see a, a, much of a drop-off in Article Eight. I mean, it's jump, it's 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 um, kind of jumpy. But in general, a gradual increase in Article 8 references over the same period. The other thing that I think is noticeable, this dark green, which is the Convention on the Rights of the Child, is started, we're starting to see a bit of a rise in that over the last few years. That is most likely attributable to two things that are relevant in terms of the whole idea of, of incorporation of treaties into domestic law. because of two things. One, legislatively, our, uh, Section or Article 55 of the Borders, Citizenship, and Immigration Act of 2009 says that any immigration by the Secretary of State must have regard for the welfare of children. And then a Supreme Court case called ZH Tanzania, which was decided in 2011, held that cases decided under Article 8 um, or in cases under Article 8, the best interest of the child must be a primary consideration. And that term, best interest of the child, is taken from the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So here we have the Convention on the Rights of the Child starting to play a more important role in asylum adjudications. And in fact, many of the attorneys I interviewed say they are, they've been, as they say, banging on for many years about the Convention on the Rights of the Child in asylum cases where a child is involved. Typical cases where Perhaps the mom or dad don't have a valid asylum claim, but if they are deported to their country of origin, it's going to be adverse to the interests of, of their child. Uh, and so the, the family is allowed to remain in the UK. So what conclusion can we, can we draw with respect to this data uh, in the context of the thematic framework of treaty effectiveness? Which, uh, again, is that treaty ratification doesn't seem to have much of an influence at all in the effectiveness of treaties and refugee litigation. But incorporation, whether it's formal incorporation or informal, uh, does matter. And that, that incorporation can come through legislative acts, like the inclusion of the European Convention into the Human Rights Act, or judicial action like this recent case of ZH Tanzania. It'll be interesting to see, as you know, we move along here further into this decade, whether or not there are an increasing number of references to the Convention on the Rights of the Child because of both um, Section 55 and ZH Tanzania. But this chart really only tells part of the story. That is, references sort of in bulk. How many references do we have? The more interesting question is whether or not these trends have been good for asylum seekers or not. Now, at first blush, the raw data seems to suggest not so much. This is the grant rate for asylum and complementary protection cases in the UK over the last two decades. And as you can see, in 1990, it was almost 90%. In fact, I've interviewed a few lawyers who've been practicing that long, and they, they say with some degree of chagrin, it was incredibly easy to get asylum in, at that time. And then you can see the rate dropped off considerably throughout the 1990s. And then after a brief rise, near the turn of the century has, has declined further still. So in the last few years, we're hovering somewhere a little bit above 20, 20%. 20 
And so ironically, at the same time that the European Convention and other treaties have been used to a greater extent by lawyers and thus are appearing in increasing numbers of judicial decisions, the grant rate for asylum and complementary protection, the very cases where these references are being made, the grant rate is declining. Now one could argue, and this is kind of a, whether you see the glass half full or half empty, you could argue that these figures would be even worse without the human rights treaties, given the various measures that have been taken by the UK government, which make to, to try and reduce the number of, of successful asylum applicants, but also just the number of applicants. In other words, making it much more difficult for people to even apply for asylum in the UK. Some of those, some of those measures include uh, border control policies that make it more difficult for refugees to reach the UK in the first place, increased returns under the, under the Dublin Convention, more restrictive appeal rights, making it more difficult to appeal adverse decisions, the, deta the detained fast-track system of deportation, making it much, much uh, easier to deport detainees who may have asylum, do have asylum claims. Those revised rules issued by the Home Office with respect to Article 8 that I mentioned earlier. Perhaps most prominently, the cuts in legal aid funding, both in the scope and the amount of legal aid funding to lawyers who represent refugees. And there are many, many studies in the UK and elsewhere showing that refugees have a much greater chance of success if they are represented by counsel. And these limiting measures seem to have had their intended effect. As the next chart demonstrates, the decline in asylum applications over the past decade. So again, since around 2000, the number of applications has decreased, in part because it's just harder for people to get here or to assert their right to claim asylum. And again, the drop in application starts at the same time as European Convention went into effect. Now, this may not be a cause and effect relationship, but it is possibly an example of how human rights treaties can affect state behavior, but in a way that's completely opposite to what human rights advocates and human rights scholars would want. It causes state actors to adopt policies, making it more difficult for people to assert the rights that are enshrined in the treaty. And as you can see from here, it definitely has had that effect. So what I'd like to do now is break down those, those total references that we've looked at into different types of references according to those seven categories that I enumerated a little bit earlier. So that's, that's what this chart does. So a few things about this. You, you can see that the majority, about two-thirds, of the references are in that category of situations where the court uh, referenced the treaty and then rejected it in, in denying asylum. Okay. So it considered the argument and then rejected it, saying that it was a bit of a, nomer, a misnomer saying it relied upon it. It just rejected the treaty argument and then denied asylum. On the other hand, and again, half glass half full, half empty, there is a sizable, sizable minority of cases where the treaty was either the basis for a grant of asylum, that's this 13% figure, or buttressed a decision, uh, buttressed a decision granting asylum on other grounds. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, not many cases in these other categories. Notable that 
only in about 8% of the cases was the treaty argument ignored. That's notable because in our data with respect to Canada, this number is about 25%. So UK courts much more inclined to at least engage the human rights arguments than our courts in Canada. Then what we did was we broke down these references according to the various treaty and treaty sections that we've looked at. And I realize there's a lot of data to absorb here, so I'll just try to highlight a few things. First of all, we can see that the treaty sections most likely to serve as the basis for asylum, and thus the most helpful treaties, are Articles 8 and 3 of the European Convention. That is, for example, with respect to Article 3, 19% of the references to Article 3 in the cases we looked at were in situations where it was the basis for the grant of protection to, to claim. And then the other sizable category would be Article 15. This is the, the um, serious harm provision of the qualification directive. But again, the overwhelming majority with respect to most of the treaties, other than CAT, Convention Against Torture, the, the most common reference were situations where the court rejected the treaty argument and denied asylum. The really, where we have the most CAT claim, by the way, is down here where it was ignored. That's because most of the time CAT is referenced, the, the attorneys will claim CAT as kind of a backstop or, or secondary argument to a claim under the Refugee Convention. And in most cases, it, then if asylum is granted or denied the court, particularly if it's granted under the Refugee Convention, the court won't even bother considering the, the CAT claim because there really is, is no need to. Now, the next thing we did was we decided to combine our treaty coding categories into a binary system to make it quite simple. And we call these helpful references and not helpful references. And what we did here was we combined primarily two of the categories, that the, the, the first and the third, where the court relied upon the treaty in granting asylum and where it used the treaty to buttress a decision in favor of the claimant. And we call those helpful references. And you can see they comprise about one quarter of all the references that we've seen. And then the non-helpful references are primarily the situation where the court rejected the treaty argument here and where it ignored the decision. Uh, and because there were so few of the, of the others, um, they, they really didn't figure into this helpful, non-helpful uh, analysis. But this, this was just a way to show that about three quarters of the references we've seen were not helpful in the sense that they, they did not assist the applicant in obtaining asylum or other forms of relief. And one of the reasons we wanted to do this was then to, to study trends. And how has, and this, 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 this just shows, this is a snapshot over the last decade primarily. Uh, but what we were interested in is, well, what kind of changes have we seen? And this is pretty interesting because the solid line are the helpful references in the treaty, in all of the treaties combined. The dotted line are the unhelpful references. So as you can see, again, most of the references are negative, but it's gone to you know, somewhere around 85% to maybe 70%. So the gap between the helpful and the non-helpful references is narrowing, such that over the course of the last decade, there have been a higher percentage of helpful references in asylum decisions by the government and, and the court. 
Uh, and again, this is especially remarkable given that declining grant rate that we just saw. So at the same time that the overall grant rate for asylum and other forms of protection is declining, the percentage of decisions containing helpful references to treaties is actually increasing. Now we we'll have to we, you know we just kind of discovered this recently. We're doing more research on it, more analysis of the data, but may, and, and and you have to be careful about cause and effect relationships in this area, obviously. But seems to demonstrate that treaty arguments have become especially effective at a time when the public, and to some extent the judiciary, have grown increasingly skeptical of asylum claims. It also suggests that in an increasing number of cases, treaties are making a difference between successful and unsuccessful claims, and are therefore having a positive impact on state actors. Now again, one caveat here, and this, is, this, this comes out of the Canadian data, because in Canada, we began to see this same kind of a trend early on in the 90s, because Canadian courts and the tribunal uh, got into the referencing of human rights treaties a little bit earlier than the UK did for various reasons. And so there was a bit of an increase, at least with respect to some of the treaties, but then a decline. And so this will be interesting to see if, particularly if we, we have that, that phenomenon where, the, where the, as one lawyer put it, over-egging the pudding. Uh, overdoing it with respect to the human rights arguments actually starts to make uh, these, these lines start to reverse, and so we start to see a, a decline in the number of helpful references. But so far, it's, it's an encouraging pattern. But now we want to look at three other possible factors influencing whether or not a court uh, re references a treaty in a positive or negative way from the perspective of the asylum seeker. So uh, the, the, the first one was who's making the decision, the tribunal or the court? Because a common theme among the lawyers that I have interviewed is that federal court judges are much more sophisticated and thus more receptive to human rights-based arguments than tribunal judges. And this slide suggests that that assumption is true, although maybe not to not as great an extent as, as the lawyers think. So the way we got to this was, as you can see, first of all, most of the references are by the tribunal. And, and that's because most of the decisions, or at least the reported decisions, are from the tribunal as opposed to the courts. Even though, again, we're only looking at a relatively small slice of tribunal decisions uh, in, in the study, because only about 10% of them end up in written decisions. And then we have the, the percentage of the total references represented by the tribunal in the court. So one would expect the distribution of helpful and unhelpful references to be about the same as that, 64% by the tribunal, 36 by the courts. But, but the reality is a little bit different. So we can see that the uh, um, tribunals were disproportionately less likely by about 3 or 4% to include references to treaties that were helpful to the asylum applicant, whereas the courts were disproportionately more likely by the same figure to include helpful references. And by the same token, the tribunals were disproportionately more likely to include unhelpful references, whereas the courts were disproportionately more, uh, less likely to include not helpful references. So again, this, this bears out the impression of many of the lawyers Although I have to say that many lawyers also said the things at the tribunal level are getting better, particularly in the last few years. Sir Nicholas Blake is now the head of the tribunal. Uh, the, the overall assumption is that uh, he, brought, he brought a heightened level of professionalism uh, to the tribunal. 
The other thing that's really interesting is the way that this relates to an unintended impact of the legal aid cuts, and an, un and an unintended by those, I'm sure, who, who uh, uh, implemented them. Because what has happened is many experienced lawyers have found that they can no longer afford to represent refugees in asylum cases. So what have they done? A lot of them have become tribunal judges. And what that's done is it's, it's elevated the sophisticated sophistication level of the tribunal such that human rights-based arguments are getting a more serious ear or more serious consideration than they used to. So while the cuts are certainly making it much more difficult for certain categories of refugees to obtain representation, in the process, once they get to the process, may actually help them because it's it's moved a lot of very good lawyers onto the bench, and therefore elevated the quality of the decisions, at least with respect to the engagement with the human rights truth. So, an unintended impact of the of the legal aid cuts. The other factor we looked at is gender of the applicant. Does that does that, does that make any difference? And we found that it does. And so what we did here was, as you can see, the first column, the first row, uh, most of the decisions where references were made to treaties involved male applicants. Some, by the way, were situations where a man and a woman filed jointly. And so again, one would expect a similar distribution of, let's say, 72% and 26%. Um, in terms of the helpful and non-helpful references. But here we can see that women disproportion are disproportionately more likely to receive helpful uh, references to treaties. This figure bumps up to 30% from 26. And male applicants disproportionately less likely to receive a helpful reference to a treaty. By the same token, women disproportionately less likely to receive an unhelpful reference. Male applicants disproportionately more likely to receive unhelpful references. What we're looking at, and we haven't had a chance to analyze the data on asylum, uh, the grant rate f uh, according to gender, uh, we've looked at that in the Canadian case, and uh, because it's, uh, women have a, a better chance of getting asylum in Canada, and some of the, some of the data we've seen suggests the same thing here. In the UK, so this this would be consistent with that. Uh, it's also consistent with the view expressed by many that female asylum seekers are less threatening and tend to be more credible than than male asylum seekers. But anyway, gender of the applicant makes a difference. So far, and we're still in preliminary stages of, of analyzing this data, so I haven't made a slide on it. It seems that the gender of the judge doesn't matter as much. That both male and female judges are more apt to provide a, a positive or a helpful reference in cases involving uh, women applicants and um, more likely to provide a non-helpful reference in cases involving male applicants. And then the last factor that we looked at is country of origin. We're still in the process of gathering this data, so this is very preliminary, but I just thought I would share it with you in any event. We looked at some of the countries that are the most um, frequent countries of origin of asylum seekers to the UK. And we're wondering, you know, is it, uh, some countries of origin, are they more likely to receive helpful references? And again, this data is preliminary, 
but it would seem that applicants from certain countries, Iran, Somalia, and Zimbabwe, more likely to receive helpful references than unhelpful references. On the other hand, applicants from Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, and Iraq more likely to receive unhelpful references. And there may be all sorts of geopolitical reasons for those distinctions. And again, we're, we're still working through the data on this, but this is one of the factors that we think may impact the kind of treaty references that are made in decisions and, and how effective treaty-based arguments are in certain cases. So I'll finish up now with a few conclusions, and then I welcome your, your comments and, and reactions to the data. First of all, human rights treaties do seem to have had a significant impact on UK state actors over the past decade. And again, here we're just talking about tribunal and higher court judges. They're forcing, those treaties are forcing these members of the judiciary to engage with treaty-based arguments and thereby influencing decisions in asylum and other forms of protection. So they are making a difference. In some, in some cases, of course, in unintended ways, as I, as, as, as I described, but they're certainly having an impact. Second, helpful references to human rights treaties have steadily increased over the past decade. Third, human rights treaties have a greater impact in domestic courts in the UK and, frankly, elsewhere, as we've seen with the other countries that we study. They have a greater impact when the treaties have been incorporated into domestic law, either through formal incorporation or effective Incorporation, incorporation through domestic legislation or high court precedent, even the Supreme Court of the country, as in the ZH case. Fourth, human rights treaties have a more beneficial impact on asylum applicants when the applicant is female. Fifth, federal courts are a little more likely to include helpful treaty references in their decisions than our tribunals, although the difference may not be as much as many lawyers assume. And Applicants from certain countries seem to be more likely to receive helpful treaty references than others. And I would finish this with a few implications. What, what does it mean for practitioners? One would be that they should continue to assert treaty-based arguments, including in areas where the treaty has not yet been incorporated. This is how cases like ZH Tanzania come about. The lawyers continue to press this argument. They press for the applicability of the treaty to the particular facts. And eventually, when the facts are right and the judge is right, a precedent will be set, which will then have a beneficial impact for applicants in the future. But the flip side of that is not to overdo it. That human rights fatigue may set in, and we may yet see that over the next half decade or so here in the UK. Treaty arguments can backfire, as many lawyers indicated, both for the individual client and for the larger cause of the diffusion of human rights treaties more generally. A third implication for practitioners, I would say, is don't, don't, don't underestimate the ability of the tribunal, especially at the upper tribunal level, to engage with human rights-based arguments. Don't assume that they won't get a decent hearing. And finally, be aware that judges are generally more amenable to treaty-based arguments where the applicant is a woman, and less amenable to such arguments when the applicant is a man.